Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Over the course of the five days last month, three small to medium-sized US banks failed. Silvergate Bank and Signature Bank both had significant exposure to cryptocurrency and failed during a period of turbulence in that market. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed when a bank run was triggered after it sold its treasury bond portfolio at a loss, causing depositors to worry that it might not give them their money back. And this all caused a bit of a fluttering in the hencoop with regulators in the US and overseas intervening to provide liquidity to banks and shore up what they feared were teetering institutions. But on the 19th of March, after days of massive deposit outflows, Credit Suisse, a large Swiss bank, was sold to its main domestic rival UBS in a shotgun marriage, brokered by the Swiss central bank and financial regulator. And despite things calming down a bit in recent weeks, the watchdogs are still on crisis alert. Global bank shares fell 12% last month and central banks have shoveled money at the sector and put interest rises on hold. So we thought we'd take a look at the history of bank crises, how and why they start and how they can affect the wider economy. Are we in a real crisis and what might happen next? And to help us pick through the chicken's entrails, we have Edward Chancellor, an old friend of the show, financial historian and author of a brilliant new book, on money called The Price of Time. So I suppose the first question about these three or four banking events is, are all these things linked? Is there some sort of domino effect here, as in, say, 2008? Or is this just a collection of discrete containable crises? Well, I think that they're linked. One has to look at the the underlying factor. I would take the lens back a bit from just these banks and look at the events of the last year. In September, if you remember, we had the near collapse of the UK pension industries and a massive decline in the UK gilts market. Uh, Shortly afterwards, we had the bankruptcy of the cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, during what was called the the crypto winter. And (laughs) now we've got the collapse of Silicon Valley banks and problems with the regional banks. So this is not, to my mind, a narrow banking crisis per se, but the problems that have come about from the readjustment of interest rates from extraordinary low levels. One of the things that happened when interest rates were very low, bond yields went down also to their lowest levels in history. And institutions, whether they're pension funds like the UK pension funds, or banks such as Silicon Valley banks, were exposed to an extremely overvalued bond market, what we call in financial terms, they'd taken on a huge amount of duration risk. And duration risk is the sensitivity of an asset's value to movement in interest rates. And I think it's fair to say that by the end of 2021, duration risk in the global financial markets was more extended than at any time in history. And that, to my mind, is the root cause of both the UK pension problems and the Silicon Valley Bank. So why do you think in the face of 
a huge amount of criticism from people like me saying that if you lend money to a government for 20 years at 1%, you are asking for trouble. Why did they all do it? Why did they not keep a short book in order to make sure that when the rates turned, which rates always do, that they were not going to be exposed? This is the thing that I find most extraordinary. Well, I, I did find it that extraordinary. I mean, if you've managed money or from an investment perspective or worked in a bank, what you need to do is you, you, you need to put the money to work and you have to take the available set of opportunities that are on offer. What banking basically involves is what we call a carry trade, of, of taking the carry between cost of short-dated money and the return on longer-dated loans. Problem, Neil, is I think twofold. One is that the absolute level of returns came down, but still there was some carry in inverted commas, the difference between the short and long-term rates. And any positive carry is enough to incentivize a bank or an investor to put money to work. You find in the, in the era of negative real interest rates, bankers and investors were lending at negative yields, but still earning a return from a positive carry. And about 10, 12 years ago, the former bond king, Bill Gross of PIMCO, was writing a whole series of his letters about his concerns that the zero interest rates after the global financial crisis had got rid of what he would call a healthy carry and replaced it with a dangerous carry, one that weakened the banking system. In a way, it just took, you know, Jonathan talks about chickens coming home to roost, it just took, you know, a decade or so for those chickens to get back to their roost. I mean, one can blame, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they didn't hedge their duration risk. They had short-dated deposits that were essentially liquid, which initially they were paying nothing on, and then they went and invested in supposedly safe treasury bonds without sort of, they could have hedged their exposure in case the Treasury bonds declined, but they didn't, so that was a sort of technical mistake. But the incentive to take these bad bets was really dictated by monetary policy at the time. Yeah. You talk about you talk about the, the bad bet that Silicon Valley Bank made. Presumably, they took that view because they became confident, <laughs> mistakenly as things turned out, that what was going on at the time would continue into the future. And it does seem to be looking at past sort of banking crises going right back to the sort of 18th century that it's generally when you have you have a sort of common view of the world that prices will follow a certain pattern and over time people leverage themselves up to take advantage of this common view and it, then suddenly there's a break and it changes and it exposes the fact that everyone is overexposed is there a good historical analogy for this crisis, what you've just described about interest rates? The proximate cause of the banking crisis, in most instances, is a change in interest rates in one part of the world or another. The rising interest rates is likely to start impairing the values of the bank assets, whether you go back to the global financial crisis, whether they're US subprime mortgage debts, or whether more recently the supposedly safe government bonds, US treasuries that Silicon Valley Bank was holding. I mean, I suppose that the greatest banking crisis in, in England 
in the 19th century was one that occurred in, in 1825. That was a time in which interest rates were very low in the in the early 1820s. The British banks had been lending a lot to South American countries, the newly independent South American republics. In those days, we were under the gold standard. And when the Bank of England's stock of gold started to decline, it started to raise interest rates to increase it, to encourage gold to come back to the bank. And that triggered a mighty financial banking bust and stock market bust. And really, you know, over the course of the 19th century, a similar type of bust occurred under roughly similar type of circumstances at roughly a 10-year period. So it's horses for courses. This. <laughs> but it, as a key difference, surely, is that with this one, at least so far, the central government has stepped in to underwrite the possible losses to depositors on a very substantial scale never seen before and surely that is a key difference between allowing these old banks to go bust and take the depositors with them and now we apparently don't allow that. Yes and although banks went bust in the global financial crisis there was a huge amount of support as you remember with the various you know tarps and tulfs and quantitative easing of the global financial crisis period and and that was when the Federal Reserve's balance sheet started to expand quite rapidly, I think, from sort of roughly 900 billion to over 3 trillion in a short period. And what they've done, as far as I can see now, US authorities have extended deposit insurance to large deposits that were previously uninsured. And the Fed is now providing loans, liquidity against banks offering them collateral at a par value when the market value of those bonds may actually be well below par, as was the case in Silicon Valley Bank. So does that solve the problem? It transfers the problem. It transfers the problem from the balance sheet of the regional banks to the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Now, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, which now swell into north of $9 trillion, might conceivably un be under a certain amount of stress in the coming months or, or years. If it were a private bank, there would no doubt be a run on the Federal Reserve and all the other central banks. Uh, given that they are state banks, people are rather blithe about the risk of the central banks going bankrupt. Last year, the Reserve Bank of Australia announced that it blew its equity. My concern, Neil, to this problem of the transfer of risk is you get to the point that the central banks themselves are overburdened. What that means, I think, is that people lose confidence in the central banks to both perform their duties of stabilizing the currency while at the same time supporting the banking system. If the safety net that the central bank offers becomes too big and it's forced to continue expanding its balance sheet, so to speak, printing money, you might get to a point that it can't control interest rates, monetary policy any longer. You know, we're not quite at that point yet. But I think the more bailouts the central banks provide, the greater that really the long-term inflation risk underlying everything appears. Can I just home in on one thing you've just said, which is about the circumstances in which the central bank's balance sheet could become so stressed that it became insolvent? Because presumably the losses which the central bank takes if it lends against bonds with impaired values because of 
moving interest rates is the underlying cause of that stress. Is that right? What people say is that because central banks don't have depositors, they can hold their bonds yeah, till maturity. maturity. A Silicon Valley bank might well have been okay if it could have held the bonds to security and, and kept on to its depositors. The problem for the central banks is that in the end, if they are insolvent, they can either print money or they can call on the taxpayers. Now, the Bank of England actually secured an indemnity from Her Majesty's Treasury when QE was launched. Mm. That means the British taxpayer actually is on the hook for all losses on its securities portfolio. And I, I, I read earlier this year that they had actually put a sort of footnote to some document the bank sent to the Treasury. They, they said under worst case scenarios, taxpayers could expect some £200 billion of losses. Now, okay, that's the worst case scenario. But there's a case in which you know the taxpayer has a contingent liability. Yes. It's uh, ironic that you made the point a moment ago about central banks under pressure. Of course, one of the central banks that's under the most pressure is the Swiss Central Bank, having essentially forced the bailout of Credit Suisse by UBS. There is nowhere else to go, really, other than, than the central bank, which, given their anti-inflation history, is somewhat ironic. Well, the Swiss Central Bank expended vast amounts of money trying to peg the Swiss franc relative to the euro during the euro crisis and afterwards. And that involved it rather, which is rather unconventional for central banks, buying a lot of foreign equities. And so I think last year, the Swiss National Bank lost the equivalent of 25% of GDP, of Swiss GDP. Having said that, it's still quite well capitalized. It had huge profits on its positions. Frankly, it's like a massive hedge fund. It's, it's always a bit problem when Swiss banks get into trouble because they're meant to be the sensible ones. <laughs> Some historians like Charles Kindleberger have said that the crises follow major financial innovations that provide investors with new and interesting ways to make or, or indeed lose money. Are they present here? I mean, are things like crypto? No, I don't think so. I, I think, Jonathan, you could say that was the case in the global financial crisis because mm. collateralized mortgage obligations and complex financial securities were were an innovation. This taking all these risky mortgages, packaging them together and cutting them into different tranches of which some were supposedly investment grade and others more like equity. That that was an innovation. Mm. Mm. You know, Silicon Valley Bank having a lot of treasury mm. bonds on its balance sheet is not an innovation. But the issue there, I suppose, is to come back to the kind of digital world in which we live is the idea that the sort of social changes that have been brought about through the use of all these uh, remote working and so forth means that there is a there are you know hidden losses now within the commercial banking system which are kind of a secular change as opposed to just the sort of fluctuations up and down in real estate values which are what have historically caused banking crises. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, there is another issue which we haven't discussed yet, which is <laughs> both Silicon Valley Bank and the run on Credit Suisse seem to have been accelerated by social media. Mm. They say that Silicon Valley's bust was the first Twitter-driven bank run. So, you, you know, the, again, the, the concerns about bank runs and the solvency of banks are a long-running 
feature of banking crisis. But now, with the internet, people can express their concerns about the solvency of a bank much more rapidly. It's a symptom, though, isn't it? It's Twitter didn't bring down Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse was was brought down by all sorts of other problems. Twitter was just a sort of accelerant. I mean, the accelerator is the key. I mean, what yeah, a bank run, is, with that. bank run is, is the formation of a crowd mentality. In the old days, it used mm. to be because, you know, people saw depositors lining up to take out their money from the bank. So they thought they better join them and take their deposit out before there was no money left. Now that, I think, is communicated online, as, as you probably recall Peter Thiel actually publicly advised his his investing companies to take their money from Silicon Valley Bank, which was definitely sparking a rut. You know, the first financial regulations, Johnson, in, in England under Queen Anne mm. were against spreading false rumours in markets that might encourage bank runs. Always hard to prove it's a false rumour when, when, when there is a run. <laughs> yeah. If it's, the bank uh... run for self-fulfilling prophecies, you know, as yeah, long as yeah. they're the inverse of a bubble. The bubble is if everyone thinks, you know, Bitcoin is going to go up, it will go up. If everyone thinks Silicon Valley Bank is to go down, it will go down. So should we hang Peter Thiel under this obscure piece of legislation? Uh, <laughs> it's very tempting. I wouldn't, <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far. So, so far, you've painted this very gloomy world where our banks, rickety banks around the world, are addicted to pretty much zero interest rates and will collapse if, if they're forced to absorb any sort of increase. And technology, meanwhile, has made banks fundamentally much more unstable by allowing Neil, without even going out and putting his coat on, to evacuate his his holdings at Credit Suisse yeah, or wherever. Switch, so switch my million switch francs it, into Switch it into else. Monzo Bank or Atom or something. What is the future then? Are we, I mean, it sounds to me as if you're saying the, the only way out of this is to carry on basically where we are, which is to have a mollycoddle financial system with very low interest rates and everyone basically issuing Greenspan puts to all and sundry to keep the show on the road. You could design a better banking system. <laughs> you know, after the 1930s banking crisis in the US, there were something called the Chicago Plan, which was a call that for, called narrow banking, all, all yeah. banks, that deposits to be backed. But by... Sil Silicon Valley Bank was a sort of narrow bank, wasn't it? It was basically just buying a whole bunch of treasury bonds. Yeah, but it, 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 that was what they were. That's what narrow banks were supposed but it, to do. But a money market fund invested in three-month treasury notes is a narrow bank, if you will. Once you you extend the the maturities of your bonds, then you're no longer really narrow banking because you're taking this duration risk. You could go down that route. There's an alternative route. You know, so the banks are the central banks and are finalizing their plans for these so-called central bank digital currencies. You could have a central bank digital currency. What is that? What I don't I don't understand this. Why would it solve the problem of the banking system? It's an alternative to our. I'm not saying it's going to go ahead, but it 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 provides clearly an alternative to a conventional banking system. Sorry, how's how does how, it do how? that? <laughs> well, because a, a, a central bank digital currency, which you could hold, you know, in a in a wallet on your iPhone or on your computer. You could use for all your transactions and settlements, just like you do use your, your current account or, or your credit card for that matter. It would obviate the need for sort of deposit banking. 
What would happen to all the banks? They'd all they'd all collapse. <laughs> hang on, hang on. I I, I, I still don't. I, I don't understand. Sorry, well, what you've you just I, said. You and I, I think, would have um, an account with the Bank of England in kind uh, of digital I don't, I'm not widgets. Sure, I'm not sure we'll be allowed to have a, an account with the Bank of England like that any more than I have an account with the Bank of England because I've got lots of pieces of paper with its name on. But I don't see how a central bank digital currency. What I don't see what impact it would have. I'm being a bit dim here. I'm sure you can explain. So Neil. The way I see it is that the central bank digital currency is it would be a form of money, digital money, that would be backed, say, by government debt. So it would be the sort of equivalent of your narrow bank. And you could use it for transactions, whether your account was directly with the central bank, the Bank of England, or with with an intermediary. I don't think it particularly matters. I think you know, Jonathan's point is... What the hell are the banks going to do? If all the deposits migrate the to ba- the Bank of England. The deposits would migrate or... under that system, in which case the banks would then have to go back to sort of intermediating loans, but not using their own balance sheets. So they would go back more to a sort of what we used to call sort of merchant banking. Well, merchant banking. <laughs> model. And, and therefore lending right. and credit risk would be separated from deposit risk. That's not, not a crazy idea. I'm I mean, my concern with central bank digital currencies is that you actually then have the state surveying every transaction and with the capacity to cut off uh, naughty boys and girls. I'm not, I'm not crazy about the privacy implications of the central bank digital currency. Just, just to go back to your theoretical merchant banks, I mean, either they are using equity to make loans <laughs> or they have to borrow from somebody. And the question is then, who do they borrow from? Jonathan, go back again to the British finance in the 19th century. You would have the Bank of England, which was then a private institution, Mm. becoming the so-called lender of last resort. But you'd have a multiplicity of other discount houses and merchant banks and so on Mm. who were providing loans, uh, discounting bills of exchange, you know, what have you. And they would ultimately, when they got into trouble, come running to... To to the Bank of England. <laughs> uh, the old lady of Threadneedle Street for, for a bit mm. of help. And, the, and in those days, the Bank of England was much more conservative. It would let small banking institutions fail. It would only lend at high interest rates against good quality collateral. We, I mean, I suppose one way or another, one's going to have to return to a more sort of prudent form of, of both central banking and banking. And even if you do that, you're still going to get financial crisis from time to time. So they, they seem to be a slightly endemic feature of a financial capitalist system. We're literally sliding into the sort of slough of despond here. But, but Eddie, what, what, is the, what, is the, what is the rational thing for, for us? We're now facing the imminent bankruptcy of all governments, wild inflation. What should, apart from, you know, rather like your sheep-like banker with his carry, we should just carry on... <laughs> just carry on sliding down in, into perdition. What is the way forward? What should we be doing? Buying farmland. <laughs> farmland, right me, is, 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 seems to be going for absurdly high prices. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I think, I think there's a strong argument for holding gold. You can actually have deposits with the Royal Mint directly. I think that's a, a better, more stable bet than, than going into <laughs> than Bitcoin. And, and let's hope they've got it. When things get really hard, of course, governments actually just confiscate 
any assets. So the U.S. government in 1933 made it illegal to hold gold and demanded yeah. that gold holders hand, hand in their, their stocks of gold. I think that law remained on the books till the early 1970s. And that was a fixed price, of course, too. Yep. The price they were offered was fixed by the tre U.S. Treasury. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know. It's been very interesting, but a kind of depressing. Um, <laughs> is there any glimmer of hope you can offer us, Eddie, about our assets not being confiscated <laughs> and our currencies going to zero? <laughs> we started off talking about Signature Bank. We're now talking about the end of the world. <laughs> well, I, I think one just has to manage one's own finances quite carefully. And, and in terms of deposits and banking, what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank is the depositors, either they went into these treasury money market funds, which is a pretty safe, very safe, mm. or, or they went to JP Morgan, the world's largest bank. So you, you'll get people... Like we can't migrate. all bank with JP Morgan. They'll, they'll <laughs> migrate into money market funds, which are secure, or into banks that are, so to speak, too big to fail. Yeah. If you're worried about long-term inflation, you can buy gold. I mean, and, and there are equities that can be bought for reasonable valuations nowadays and that should provide decent returns going forward over the long run. So the thing about investment, Jonathan, as you know, is that to get a good opportunity, you need to be sort of on the edge of the precipice. <laughs> uh, and at that point, <laughs> one should, you know, one should make one's bets and, and, and hold on to them and, and not worry too much. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.